0: Welcome to episode 41 of the Mountain Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Lee, with my co host, Stephen Lewis. Hello. How's it going, man? Very good. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. We got cross nationals in town. Say it's a week for skinny ish tires. It is? Yeah. <laughs> Skinny-ish. I like how you yeah. did that. Yeah. If you don't know what we're talking about, check out our Instagram. We should actually post that up into an actual post. Yeah, I did system. save it, so we need to make it a nice. post. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good feedback on that so far. So far, yes. We basically taught you how to modify your tires. If you have like 45C tires, we know how to make them 33Cs to be legal for USAC. It's really easy. It's very easy. It so, took us, what,
1: 15, 20 seconds per tire?
0: Maximum, yeah. Crazy. So you guys can check that out on our Instagram. Go to MTV Podcast. Yeah, where else can they find us?
1: They can find us on uh, Facebook at MTB Podcast, mm-hmm. Twitter at the MTB Podcast, mm-hmm. and then obviously Face or, uh, Instagram, the the Faceagram, yes, as you will.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then uh, also on podcast things, of course. And you can oh, yeah. review and share from there, and we yeah. would appreciate it. iTunes, SoundCloud. Head to mtbpodcast.com, pick up some swag. Uh, we will be laying out plans shortly. Once this week gets over, then things are less crazy. Mm-hmm. I've got some traveling next week for work, but not, not a whole lot. So, Stephen, uh, you and I will be able to actually get the Sedona plans down. Yes. Which will be good. So, And and swag and all that stuff, too. So stay tuned for that. Uh, this episode is going to be a bit shorter than normal. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be a questions episode where we just go into the questions. Absolutely. Um, we do have a couple news items to cover. A couple first quick though. ones. Wanna hit them? Yeah, let's go. Right, let's do it. News team assemble. First bit of news is from Stan's uh, wheels. We've mentioned Stan's wheels a lot. Yeah, we have. And it's about to be new bike day for me mm-hmm. pretty soon. Okay. Which is exciting stuff. Are you getting a Cannondale? <laughs> nope, I'm not. Oh, okay. I Although yeah. I did ride your Super X, the thing was friggin' sweet for cross.
1: It's it's a great cross gravel bike. It's amazing.
0: Yeti has yet to figure out how to put the Switch Infinity system into a cross bike. Yeah, so we quite I don't know if they out. ever would. Yeah, that'd be kind of weird. <laughs> not quite sure. Yeah. Um, so no cross bike there. But uh, actually, somebody did call call me out yesterday for not having a lefty. That was their heckle. Really? Yeah, they said, sweet Cannondale, bro, where's your lefty? When I was riding the cross course. Just tell them it's on your son's push bike. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. It's <a> true story. <laughs> um, but anyways, stands yeah. came out with some wheels, and I'm thinking of actually putting some, not this wheel set, but I'm looking at some others. Anyways, they came out with a wheel set that's $479. Yeah. It's uh, it's not quite plus, I guess kind of, almost. It's 2.35 to 2.8. So yeah, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a, a 29
1: mil internal, so it's not huge, but it's also right. not very small.
0: Yeah, it, they're hefty. Mm-hmm. So they're called the S1s. We yes. should say that first. They're aluminum rims, obviously. They come in 27.5 or 29s. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, they're hefty. They're
1: 2,150 grams in 29er. Yeah. That's pretty stout. That for is for someone
0: like me, that might hold up. Yeah and that's the thing so stands way back when was like known for like being noodly wheels that wouldn't hurt your wallet exactly now they're known as actually they should be known i should say as solid wheels yeah. like good wheels um, they've done a lot in terms of how they build the wheels and everything else that they're really good the one thing, um, that they said, so pink bike did a review on them and when they had them, they said that there was minimal need to, like they said, they had to retrue them every once in a while yep. in the back, but not much it was, actually, I shouldn't say retrue, but it was just retention, some spokes. They said that some will get a little loose. Yeah. They mentioned that it's just some thread locker might've helped that, um, on the spokes. Mm-hmm. But other than that, and then they said they got some dings on the rims, but they're wide rims. So first of all, it's something that people should understand is if you have wider rims, chances are you're going to get more dings, more impacts to those rims with rock. Absolutely. And so like, you can't just say like, oh, well, my skinny rims that have a 21 millimeter internal width, I'd never hit my rims. That's because they're surrounded by a lot of tire and they're really skinny. Yeah. So in this case, you know, it's not quite apples and apples there. So. But still, it's a solid wheel and it's four hundred and seventy-nine bucks. Which is amazing. That's awesome. Dude, that is yeah. cheap. Yeah. Like so many people have problems with their wheels. And I, I get it, these ones are heavy and everything else. But like if you have problems with your wheels, check this out. Yeah. It's a solid option. Exactly. You can even get and they make like X or the the hubs they have, you can get an XD driver with them. Yeah. Like it's it simplifies things. So Anyways, that's one thing. Then the next thing is CES, California Enduro Series, two of their rounds, China Peak round, and then the Kamikaze Games round. Uh, Both of those are going to now give you points toward uh, an EWS round. So basically to qualify for EWS, I think it's similar to like a lottery almost in Mm -hmm. some respects. Yeah. And if you accrue a certain amount of points or anything else, and you may accrue those even for trying to register for one, kind of like the hunting tag system works. Like how if you try to buy a tag and you don't get in, you get a bonus point for the next year type of a thing. Yeah. But anyways, you, you qualify based off of points and that goes off of your position and based off your position, you get more points and how you finish. Yeah. And for EWS, they have U21 Elite, but they don't call it Elite. They just call it Men's or Women's. And then they have Masters, which is 40-plus. Which I like that they're 40-plus in Enduro instead of Mm 35-plus.
1: 35-plus, like UCI Downhill does 35, and you have to petition to be back in your Elite or Pro, Mm. which is, I don't know, caveat, Mm. side
0: Mm. knowledge, yay. Interests. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, anywho, uh, kudos, CES. And then good news for all the folks that are racing Enduro on the West Coast. I still think you probably get those points with BME and, and Scott Enduro Cup. I'm sure you get those points there, too. So, yeah. Um, anywho, Steven, questions time. Indeed. Question. That's a ridiculous question. False. That's debatable. <laughs> Okay. First one is from Ray Ray. He says, I understand that tire size is the talk these days, internal rim widths and a wider tread footprint is what I see around me. My question is why is this more important to the masses than points of engagement? seems to me there could be an aftermarket company that can make an upgraded free hub. This free hub would insert into the many 20 to 30 point of engagement hubs on the trail these days. I know it's not that easy. And the tooth ring limits this, this equation some. I'm sure there's an, an aftermarket, or sorry, I'm sure there is a market for this. When I went from 21 to 52 points of engagement, it was a huge difference in shifting and tech riding. Then 120 was even beyond my doubts. seems to be a lot of waste if bike builders say a rim and spoke or rim and spoke shouldn't be used to build a second time. I'm going to cut that last part out. It doesn't really make sense. Okay. He says, honestly, I'd rather... A better hub, points of engagement than a couple of millimeters of tire width. I would love to hear y'all's opinion. Thanks for the podcast and the best podcast weight in the world. Ooh. Ooh, dang. We've been elevated. Crazy. Yeah, pretty solid. So uh, points of engagement, I feel like we're comparing apples to oranges a bit here. It's almost apples to hand grenades, actually. Uh, They're two
1: very different things.
0: Yeah, and I understand, I guess what you're saying, Ray Ray, is like uh, people should be more focused on points of engagement than... Tire with, but I disagree, actually. I do, too. Yeah. Um, The points of of engagement
1: uh, remark, I don't... I guess I just don't see... There's a huge difference in 20 degrees of engagement versus 6 degrees of engagement. Mm -hmm. So, But on the same token, there's not like an aftermarket company that can make one free hub that will just kind of retrofit into everybody's hubs because your drive ring and Paul design is completely different between... SRAM, like yes. the S900 hub versus, say, an Industry 9 torch hub yeah. versus, you know, anything else that uses the spring and Paul method. Totally different all the way around. Different sizes, different dimensions, different widths, different. Uh, the actual Paul has a different hooking design, like the actual yeah, tooth itself. It's all unique. It's all unique. So you can't really have one aftermarket or even three aftermarket versions that would work across the board. So it's not really going to work that way.
0: Here's two things that I think of really quick. Yeah. When you're riding on a trail, and, and what you say is, is true, when you have greater points of engagement, you feel it, especially when you're ratcheting. Absolutely. Actually, I'd say pretty much only when you're ratcheting. Well, yeah. Now, and, and if it's like initial acceleration or anything else. Mm-hmm. However, when you go from something like six degrees to 20 degrees to 30 degrees or 50 degrees, it's a massive improvement. And then when you go 50 and above, it's really not a whole lot more. Yeah. At least in my experience. What yeah. I've had. So, but here's the main reason why this won't happen because most riders aren't going through terrain that's challenging enough or aren't riders at the ability level that they could fully appreciate that sort of a benefit they would get from a much greater level of points of engagement than they previously had. However, and, and we're just talking about in your comparison, I know a beginner would totally benefit from that and they may not even notice it, but that's only in ratcheting sections. Mm -hmm. Whereas a wider internal width on a rim and a tire, that will benefit a rider in every single situation whenever their tires are rolling. Because traction. Exactly right.
1: Yeah. So and stability.
0: And and that will help them become a more stable rider across the board, descending, going up, going through technical stuff, everything. Yeah. Whereas points of engagement will just help a person when they're ratcheting through technical stuff or like a rapid acceleration, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um I, I get it. I love high points of engagement. Um, so I'm I'm on board with that Ray Ray, but that's why. That's not as good as huge of a focal point right yeah. now. So,
1: and, and honestly, anything, you know, from the OEM, that's going to be, you know, mid-level build and up is going to have 10 degrees or less of engagement. So it's mm-hmm. going to be a tight engagement. Yeah. Yeah. It's any more, you're not finding a whole lot. That's going to have your, you know, 20 degrees of engagement.
0: Yeah. And I don't know I people that are freaking out right now, writing in with industry nine or other brands that have a bunch of points of engagement, want to say why it's so much better. It is. Like, Stephen and I aren't saying it's bad. It's no, better. No, we're not. Yeah. It's better. But when we're talking about this context of, of tire width and, it, and rim width and how they made up versus points of engagement and which one has more impact on an average rider on the trail, tire width. Yeah. Go if it, Let's just say, just as an
1: example, <laughs> look at my uh, my Cannondale Jekyll. Mm-hmm. It came with SRAM 900 hubs, which have a 6 pole I believe it's 6.7 degrees of engagement the way that that one works Uh and I would rather have that hub Mm -hmm. being a $300 hub than a project 321 or an industry nine torch yeah and have a better wider rim yeah that's I I would rather have a wider rim than three extra degrees you know of engagement or three less degrees of engagement however you want to word it
0: exactly right and we've we've gone into this in the past, but, um, the key with the wide rims, once again, is that you match the tire width with that, yeah, with that rim width, and the manufacturer should tell you what that is. Absolutely. So. Next one is from single track. Sam playing. I don't know if that's Tagalog or what Sam playing. I'm not sure. I don't know. He says, Hey guys, insert all the usual praises you've been getting. Cause they're all true. Oh, thank you, man. Thank you. Five stars of the podcast for sure. Best in the world. <laughs> mm. You know, I've heard another podcaster say, if you're, if you're debating and you're going through some sort of a crisis or a dilemma on how many stars to give us. Just go for the rightmost star, and that's the best way to make it happen. I think. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. There you go. Anywho, uh, he says. New Brider here, or see, forgive me. He says, I don't even need to keep the rating hostage. Good to hear Thank he says, you, new Newbrider here. I just started last July and I never listened to podcasts until I, until I started writing. I started listening to the other ones and couldn't help, but notice the foul language being used. So it was amusing to find out that you guys specifically went against that. Thanks for keeping it classy for the most part. Man, were we not classy at some point? Well, when I'm on
1: painkillers, apparently Mm. I can not be classy. That's
0: true. I think I've tried to mute you when that happens. You did. Yeah, (laughs) you definitely (laughs) muted me. Okay. I recently found myself listening to episode one, and it made me realize how little I knew back then, contrasting it to how much I know now simply due to listening to the podcast. It's led me to come up with my question. On episode one, Jonathan mentions learning to love things you hate, something like that. And now he taught himself to love climbs being a new writer that spoke to my heart. I was, I was, so I was hoping you might expound on this and let us know what you did to get about or to go about doing that. Thanks for everything you guys are doing. And Jonathan, hope you're working on your strumming technique. Cheers. Yeah. He's talking about guitar there. Yes, yeah. he is. Yeah. I'm working on it. It's getting a little better. Yeah. Yeah. So Mary had a little lambs coming along real great. <laughs> <So>. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, yeah. So how did you learn to love things you hate? Hmm. I, I think that within the context of riding bikes, and then this principle is learned and it has a broader application, yeah. but I, I felt like when I first got into bikes, I watched pink bike videos. I watched everything else. I was like, everything is an awesome flow trail. Yeah. This is incredible. I like mountain biking. Mm-hmm. And then when I get out on my b- mountain bike, I'd be like, this is a different sport. I'm going uphill. Yeah. This sucks. Yeah. I have to go up to go down. Mm-hmm. I don't have some dude with the Polaris razor bringing me up to the top or, you know, Fair. shuttling all the time or anything else. So anyways, I got to this point where I thought I'm either going to hate mountain biking because I'll have this necessary evil that I have to face every single time yeah, and that I currently resent. And that will make me hate mountain biking or I can change that around. And I can just be okay with the fact that I suck right now, but I can put a plan in place to be better. Okay. So this is long before I use anything like train a road or a power meter or anything else. Okay. <clears throat> and I just figured, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out and I'm going to ride this climb. And if I don't last until the top of the climb, then I'm going to just go until as far as I can last. Then I'll turn around and I'll just try that again. I'll give myself plenty of time to rest. Yeah. And I just kept kind of working on that. And instead of like, trying to go up the climb a little faster time after time, which is, which works too. This Mm -hmm. is a very unspecified, I wouldn't even call this training. This is just riding hard. Yeah. I just figured I'll ride as hard as I can until I blow up and then I'll turn around, rest, and then I'll try it again. Yeah. So it it kind of inserted a challenge into climbing. And I think that that's something that a lot of, I know everyone's saying, yeah, I get it. It's challenging enough. But when you challenge yourself instead of the climb, just challenging you, then I think it changes a bit. So... I think a lot of it, it just comes down to patience though, mm-hmm. patience and, and having time. I mean, how have you, because you're, you're one of the riders that I've ridden with. that doesn't, you don't complain on climbs. Um, no, you're, you're not that guy. And, and honestly, like you're, you're a big guy too. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're tall. You have super broad shoulders. You have a big build. So you carry more weight than a lot of people would. So I'm sure a lot of people. There are plenty of people that are smaller than you and complain a whole lot more going up a climb. So how do you reckon with that?
1: Honestly, the the biggest thing for me was uh, really learning one to appreciate the climb. Being faster on climbs and being more physically fit makes the descents one more enjoyable because I can be faster and not be completely tired and just done Yeah, in the descent. So I have the endurance in the descent to go faster and have more fun. But I also, it's like the earning your turns thing. Yeah. You know, there's this appreciation of, I went up this 2,000 feet or 3,000 feet, so I get to turn around and go Back down, yeah. You know, like the day that we did our ride from Reno over to Lake Tahoe and did the Tyrolean downhill. Yeah. I knew that that hour, and well, actually, I think it was like two and a half hours to yeah. the summit. Yeah.
0: Um.
1: You know, that arduous climb that was almost four thousand feet. Yeah. Was worth it because we got to do some pretty amazing descending on the other side.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And the other the other aspect would be just learning to be better at it, and you know, getting better at climbing and yeah. being able to. Um, one, do it faster and two last longer just in the climb itself. It's achieving kind of that. Like you said, you're challenging yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so becoming good at something is for me, you know, I hated climbing at first, but yeah. you know, once you're like, Hey, this is a goal. I want to be better at this.
0: They say comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. And I would agree in this case. I find that it's Strava can be very demotivating for a lot of people when they start out, yeah, because all it is is a confirmation of their their self doubt, yeah. right? So I I would recommend unless you're just strictly using Strava to be able to gauge your time on something and you're just competing against yourself, then sure. But but let's be real, it's going to be really hard for you to just compete against yourself. You're going to want to compete against other people. It's human nature. Yeah,
1: and and for me, so. you know, when it comes to the Strava, the only thing that I really use Strava for anymore is to see where I you know where I move up in the leaderboard and where I compare myself to previous rides on the same trails. Yeah. So you know, with you, I know that when you and I are out climbing. And I'm pushing myself hard and I'm sitting at, you know, 165, mm-hmm. 170 beats per minute. And I'm like, you know, sweating my brains out and and not, in a sense, enjoying myself. Yeah, yeah. I know that you're writing fairly easy. Right, right. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. And I'm fine with that. Um, but- I look at the Strava boards and I think, okay, well, if I did this climb last year or six months ago and I just moved up two positions overall, I don't care who's in front of me or who's behind me. Just from the where fact you that were. I moved up yeah. means that I'm getting faster.
0: Yeah. Comparing so that's for yourself. Exactly.
1: So yeah. I really do just use Strava for comparing to myself. I don't even it, yeah. it, but that's kind of a new I'd say in the last year yeah. that I've gotten to that point with it.
0: It's pretty hard to do. I yeah. think yeah, it takes a, a lot, lot of, of self-control. Yeah, it really does. So I would recommend if you find yourself getting dis- discouraged because other people are getting up to the top faster than you or, or anything else, just, don't, don't even worry about using Strava then or record with Strava, but then just don't look at it thereafter, you know, yeah. like, uh, that, cause it really can damage things in terms of your mindset and your, your attitude toward riding and toward climbing, especially. So yeah. I think that if you just look at the situation is, or as I have a finite amount of strength and mm-hmm. a finite amount of energy. And that will get me up to the hill at a certain time. Mm-hmm. And that's just how it's going to be today. And yeah. that's okay. Yeah. You're going to do what you can. But the the key is if you want to enjoy climbing, just put a goal out there, whatever that goal may be, whether it's get to the top a little faster for yourself or whether it's, you know, have enough energy to get over that one crux move that you have to do toward the top or whatever else it might be. Yeah. Set a goal like that. And then that'll make it so that you can actually work toward that and get over it. Um, it's just, uh, I think of mountain bikers, people that ride mountain bikes, even the downhill guys, if they were honest, the guys that like never climb and just shuttle. Yeah. I bet those guys could find climbing enjoyable too, because they like a challenge Mm -hmm. or else you wouldn't be riding mountain bikes because it's a challenging thing. So I think that's one of the keys. Yeah. And not to be a Debbie Downer or, you know, a reality guy,
1: but Mm -hmm. just remember all the people that can't do that.
0: Yeah. True story.
1: So even if you don't thoroughly enjoy climbing, just remember there's a lot of people who can't go ride a bike and can't yeah. enjoy nature the way that we can on a yeah. bike. So just put that in perspective.
0: Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. I, I thought of that pretty regularly when my friend Paul was injured.
1: Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Paul's the, like the first person that comes to mind when I think of that. Yeah, yeah.
0: And he's now able to do it because of you know insane amounts of hard work before his injury. He never, (laughs) so he was, he was injured for those that don't know, it's Paul Basagoidia. He was injured at Red Bull rampage, um, spinal cord injury and, uh, was actually, uh, paralyzed, uh, from the waist down completely basically for quite some time. And then through a ton of rehab and hard work, he's been able to regain certain function, Mm -hmm. uh, at at which level he's now able to ride outside and, and ride these trails and, and pedal up them. And he just got an e-bike. Yeah, It's frigging awesome. That's great. Yeah. Cause I can't think of a better usage of an e-bike than in this situation. Yeah. Right. Cause he's pretty limited on the strength he has yeah. um, going uphill. So anyways, but before his injury, he was like, I, 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 he, like, he would complain hard when we were climbing. Yep. He's not into it. Yeah. Um, like I remember, I think one ride that we did, I was like, yeah, it's going to be like six or seven miles up. He's like, What? Like, no, <laughs> like, where's the pickup? Yeah. I don't work that way. Yeah. And now I swear he's faster. Like even without the e-bike, he's faster than he was beforehand. Yeah. Um, Jen, I think a lot of it is just a mindset change. Yeah.
1: And his, his, uh, rehabbing and, uh, kind of comeback in general has been a huge motivator for me with my knee Yeah, way lesser, you know, injury, but still
0: really impressive stuff. Yeah. So. Alan says, "Hi guys, I'm in the middle of my biggest DIY project to date, upgrading my 2016 aluminum Intense tracer to a 2017 carbon Intense primer frame. While doing so, I want to upgrade from 2x10 to 1x11. I was going to do Eagle, but I have Intense branded cheap hubs, I believe made by Formula, with sh- with a Shimano driver, and could not find a way to get the right HD driver or XD driver. He says I don't have the budget to upgrade the drivetrain and the wheel set. My quandary is at six foot four, and not in tip top shape, I read that I should go with 100, 175 millimeter cranks for fit and help with pedaling. My current bike has 170 millimeters. And my worry is with pedal strikes, which occur a lot with my 170 millimeters. Well, five millimeters make a huge difference. And even more pedal strikes. Mind you that the tracer has 160 millimeters front rear and the primer has 140 millimeters rear and 150 millimeters front, but has a steeper head tube angle and slightly, uh, angle. And I'm swapping my 160 millimeter fork from the Tracer. I'm thinking that would add a touch more BB height, allowing the longer cranks. Uh, so, a couple of questions that he has. First, that can if you have like an aftermarket hub that's just like white labeled, yeah, it yeah, can the be pretty darn yeah, tough to find. The a formula
1: hubs, you're going to be stuck with um, Shimano drivetrain.
0: Yeah, gonna, so yeah. which isn't the end of the world. You could go with like the XT. Yeah. And it goes from a, it goes all the way from an 11 to a 46. Yeah. And the other thing you can
1: do also, just remember, just because your free hub body is stuck with Shimano um, 10, 11 speed, Mm -hmm. does not necessarily mean you can't run XL1, 11 speed. You would just have to run a Shimano cassette.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. So you could run an X01 drivetrain yes. with the Shimano cassette. Yeah. Or he could run- And you run can also
1: run a Sunrace cassette. You or can, E13 TRS. You know, all the TRSs is 11-speed oh, or XD free. they XD. So,
0: so yeah, Sunrace, yeah. So yeah,
1: so you there's a few different options you can do. Um, you can even take the the Shimano 1142 cassette, mm-hmm. and you can run multiple Wolf Tooth components, one-up components. Um, Garbaruk, um, they're out of Russia. Um, they make 1149. Wow. Um, setups for the eleven forty two. So you'd, really
0: easy gear so you'd
1: end out. up having near Eagle gearing on an eleven speed with a Shimano free hub body.
0: Mm, that's so good. So
1: you could do that and still run an X01 eleven speed drivetrain. And that also, if you can find that stuff cheap since you know the bird is out, yeah. all of the <laughs> x one and XX1 eleven speed stuff is going for cheap.
0: Oh yeah. Dirt yeah. cheap.
1: So so that's actually not a bad way to go.
0: Not bad at all. Now you talk about pedal strikes and I think that in most cases, so the, the crank length debate for taller people and everything else, I, it's it's arguable if it's actually better for taller riders. Mm-hmm. You can The data actually is not conclusive. And if somebody sends us a study that proves one way, all you have to do is just Google for five minutes and you'll find one that proves the other. Yeah. So it's just it's, – it's inconclusive. And I think a lot of that is because our body is an adaptable – thing. It's, it's not just a static machine. Exactly. And as a result, what happens is that we tend to adapt to crank lengths and everything else, and we put out power differently. Whether it's through muscular recruitment patterns, or whether it's through different muscle groups that will stress more than others, yeah. we'll end up compensating for it. And then with time, you'll end up actually building strength and efficiency. Yeah, uh, you know, in that same way. Oval chain rings are the same thing. <laughs> yes, exactly right. So. so in this case, it's not necessarily better to run 175s. That said. Um, you know, taller riders with taller or with longer fo- femurs and everything else. A lot of the time you'll see them with longer cranks. It's not a bad thing either. Yeah. But yeah, it, it could hurt with pedal strikes, but keep in mind, remember what we're looking at when we're talking about that's five millimeters. Yeah. It's not a whole lot. And
1: the other thing we got to remember is we're going from a full enduro bike mm-hmm. with essentially in theory, a slightly lower bottom bracket. Yep to a 140 bike that's obviously going to be trail geometry. So it's yep. actually going to have... Slightly in higher. In theory, it's going to have a slightly higher bottom bracket height and the we're putting fork. a 160 fork on it. So we're actually slackening the head tube out and raising the bottom bracket another one and a half to two millimeters. Yeah. So um, I think that it would be... I think you should, you can stick with 170s and be perfectly fine. I agree. If you wanted to put 175s, great. I think switching to the trail geometry is going to make it almost identical for pedal strikes than your 170s on the Enduro bike.
0: Yep. And the one thing I can say about pedal strikes is that much more of the pedal strike thing comes down to timing your pedal strokes then it comes down to the equipment choice
1: yep absolutely that's you know uh my jekyll came with uh, a very ai
0: specific
1: spindle length blah 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 for the you know the cannondale jekyll and because it's an 83 millimeter bottom bracket it requires a longer spindle so sram made descendant carbon cranks custom for cannondale on these wow and uh, I'm I'm stuck with 175s unless I was gonna say switch to Race Face Next R's or you know right. a completely different crank. Mm. So I had to go back up to 175s on this bike, and I don't pedal strike any more than I ever did on any of my Yetis with. There you go, 170s, and so I'm five mils longer on crank arm, and I'm lower on bottom bracket height. Your dial. So it's just learning where your pedal motion yeah. is as you're going, and just timing your 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 strokes to that. That makes sense. So
0: yeah. Uh, James says, "Hey guys, I'm wanting to know your thoughts on all things GPS. I would like to be able to see more stats during and after my ride, so I have a few options. Number one, get a GPS head unit like a Wahoo Element Bolt with speed and cadence sensors. Two, get a GPS watch and sensors, and either mount it to the, my wrist or bars. To add to all of this, I am also thinking of getting Trainer Road, so I would need addi- new or I would need additional sensors to get the trainer bike set up. The type of riding I'm doing is mostly enduro with some XC. Thanks, James."
1: Um, as far as displaying when you're, I'm going to let you answer most of this cause you're kind of the trainer guru.
0: Well, yeah. And we kind of, I yeah. think that we both have this one pretty well.
1: The one thing that I don't like about the wrist watches is while you're riding, mm-hmm. obviously wearing it, wearing it on your wrist and uh, not going to help. Mm-hmm. But one thing is if you do run a Garmin watch mm-hmm. or a Suunto watch or any of the other brands um, of watches, they do make rubber handlebar attachments that are shaped kind of like your wrist and you can strap the the wristwatch right to there. They but look think, a little goofy. They do look goofy, <laughs> but I think you should run, uh, in my opinion, I would run some sort of head unit. So, from there.
0: Yeah, so you run a Phoenix.
1: I run a Phoenix 3 Sapphire. Yeah.
0: And how do you, like, what are the pluses and downsides of that for a mountain biker?
1: Um, the downsides as a mountain biker are that you have to take your hand off the handlebars and hope that the scrolling screen is on the display that you want to see yeah. at the that moment
0: that you go to look at it can you stop that from scrolling can you have it just yes. stay static on one thing
1: you can have it stay static on one thing and i believe you can run up to you can run i think it's up to four or six different items on each watch face cool but they get really small really quickly so i usually just run three all yeah. of my pages show three different items and i have them set up to where all of my speed mm-hmm. like average speed instant speed Lap speed or the whole ride speed, um, all of that will show up on one page, and then your distances show up on one page, and then your elevation gain and losses and all gotcha. that show up on the other page. Cool. Um, so that's how it scrolls back and forth between all of those. So I get nine different parameters, but it's like every twenty seconds it rolls mm-hmm. to the next page. Um, but you can lock it on whenever one you want and have one, two, three, four, whatever you know items you want on there. Um, the pluses of it is I don't have a and. I came from having the the eight the uh, the eight hundred okay and uh, mounted on my handlebars, and I actually broke it and the K Edge mount at Downeyville in a crash, okay. and that was when I decided that I no longer wanted to have anything on my handlebars. When mountain biking,
0: where was it? Was it an out front mount from Edge? It was an out
1: front mount on cage. Um, and that was one, my first mistake Two, Um, you can run the STEM top cap ones. Actually, no, you can't because then you can't run the MTV podcast one. So, um, <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. And I also have a qualm with that one too. Yeah. Like I think that, so with my bike, for example, yeah. Where mine is in the out-front position on my K-edge, if I roll my bike forward mm-hmm. right now and just it did a somersault... If it hits. It doesn't hit.
1: Oh, it doesn't? No. See, mine did. My levers hit. Okay.
0: And so, like, it's fine. Okay. And I, th- I think a lot of people assume that, yeah, I don't want to have an out-front mount because it's more vulnerable. And then they put it on the stem. Yeah. And I just look at that and I think, you're, you're, you're backwards. Like yeah. Why aren't you thinking? Because now... Your stem is a pretty high piece of equipment there. And then you have a Garmin, a, a, a fancy, fragile screen sitting on top of that. Yeah. Like that, that's foolish
1: to me. Yeah. And so the, the the one thing I will say is that K-Edge did switch their out front mounts. They used to sit high. Yes. In relation to the bar. Now they actually sit low. They sit low. So the, the
0: out front mounts might be better now. Mine was prior to that. And they have an XL mount yeah. and a non-XL. Mm-hmm. If you're running the... If you're running like the Edge 1000, then you want to have the XL mount. Then you might if, as
1: well just put your iPhone on the front of your bike on one of those quad quadlock things because those pretty, are giant.
0: Pretty massive. Yeah. Um, but if you're running the 820, if you're running the 520, if mm-hmm. you're running the Wahoo Element Bolt, and you'll nick up the corner a bit, but if you're running the normal Wahoo Element, yeah. you can fit all of them on K-Edge's standard mounts. And the cool part is... Even though, like I said, when you twist lock it, it'll kind of like rub the corner of the element, which is just fine. It's, you know, it's, it's plastic. It's okay. When you do that, it's like flush mount to your bars. Yes. It's really clean looking. Yep. So that's a cool – I like that aspect of it. It's not sitting way out in front. Totally. It, just aesthetically clean. Yeah. Uh, so and I, I'd I also be worried about the weight of, of, of Phoenix because they're a pretty heavy watch. Yeah. Does, it, does that bother you at all when you ride?
1: No, actually it doesn't. And I run the heavier um, – the stainless band yeah. on mine, and it actually doesn't cause any issues whatsoever. Mine's sized really right for my wrist, and it, it fits really well, and it never causes any sort of issues. I've never had
0: – You have man wrists and bear paws. Though. I do, yeah. Yeah. So, so
1: for anybody – more
0: fragile, delicate wrists like mine.
1: Yeah, then you'd want to run the silicone band, and that's going to save a lot of weight. Okay. Um, but it is a big watch, and but it the is thing true. is, you got to remember now if you if you do have smaller wrists and smaller hands, you can run the the Phoenix 5S, the little
0: yeah. guy, or you could run their Forerunner series. Yeah, or the, the Forerunner. I mean, they've Runner got the nine
1: thirty five, they've got the six thirty five, they've yeah. got um, one of my friends runs the little two thirty five. Yeah, and it does everything.
0: Yeah. So and you it, could do that you know. too. I mean, if you need power, then you want to have the 635 or above. Yes. The 235, I don't believe does power, but no. I could be wrong. But
1: it'll do speed and cadence and all that.
0: Yeah. 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 So um, th- that's a good option that you could use. Yeah.
1: The multi-sport watches are getting way better for the bike aspect. Yeah. Because before originally, they wouldn't allow you to run multiple bike profiles. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were, they were very basic in that sense. They were made for triathletes and that was it.
0: I think that mountain bikers should mm-hmm. actually look at having watches watches more than they should having a head unit. I agree. And the reason for that is because usually mountain bikers have, I, this sounds really bad because I bet, you know, I'm going to be alienating some people with this. So I apologize if so, but it seems like, whereas road bikers might have their road bike mountain bikers, it seems like usually have that they would have a greater tendency to have multiple bikes. Yeah. So like, whether it's like a dirt jump bike or whether it's their XC bike and their trail bike or their new bike and their old bike, Mm -hmm. or you know, maybe you're a factory dude. So you have your race bike and then you have your practice bike, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, you
1: can go broke buying mounts for all those bikes.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you forget that your Garmin, you know, you have to move your Garmin each time. Whereas if it's on your wrist, you never forget it. Yeah.
1: And that's what I love about mine is I, I wear mine for my watch every day. Like yeah. that's my watch.
0: And even though you <clears> can download trail forks maps onto your G onto your Garmin, you mm-hmm. can't do it on a Wahoo. So actually in my thoughts really quick, I, I personally, I've used the Wahoo element and the Wahoo element bolt and I don't, think that they're a better head unit in the Garmin Okay. Garmin have their little issues, but the element has a ton of issues too. Yeah. So, and they don't get pointed out in first reviews. So you'll look online and everyone loves it because it is way easier to set up yeah. than the Garmin. It's really intuitive in that respect. Yeah. And it's, and it's like a big, uh, the display is like really clear. It's solid. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's good. Um, but, and like the nav, the maps on that one, they are really rudimentary, but they function really well. Mm-hmm. So they don't usually mess up. But the biggest problem that I had was constant firmware updates that were breaking it, that were making it difficult to pair to my phone via Bluetooth. Yeah. That were, It was just like, Every time I just wanted a ride to upload, I would see that it actually hadn't uploaded and there was no reason. Yeah. So then I'd have to go in and manually push to to upload it. Yeah. Um, whereas Garmin is perfectly automatic with uploading. And it's
1: it's gotten, in the last two years, Garmin has gotten leaps and bounds better. So if you oh, yeah. used to be on Garmin and it was quirky with its Bluetooth, everything mm-hmm. like that to the, the Connect app, It's amazing now. It's so seamless and so perfect. Much better. But they do have their issues. Oh, yeah. But they're they're overall very great.
0: Navigating is kind of a pain on a Garmin. Yeah. Um... (laughs) Like you can have the, the maps. Like I said, you can put trail forks maps on there, but it's difficult to use them. Yeah. So my two cents is for a mountain biker, get a multi-sport watch from a company like Garmin, I would suggest over something like Suunto. Yes. Because you're just, you're just going to get wider, more broad compatibility with yes. different apps. Absolutely. Um, so I would recommend getting a Garmin Forerunner 635, 935, or a Phoenix series watch. Mm-hmm. And then I would use your phone for trail forks maps. True. And yep. because like for a mountain biker... You don't if you don't care about mapping then look at the stages dash cuz that thing is just pure data. Yeah. It doesn't have maps at all. Yeah. But it's just pure data and that's a great setup to yeah. have. But um if you're looking at, you know, needing maps then I just say go for a Garmin watch and then you can use your phone. Yeah.
1: And the one thing just one little thing I would tell you about GPS on the Garmin stuff. If you have Google Earth Pro, building courses Mm -hmm. out of Google earth pro and making them into a GPX file Mm -hmm. and then downloading them into your courses. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Perfect. Flawless. That's all I do.
0: Also Strava is helpful for this. I use Strava for route building way more than anything else. I have everything set to auto upload, but I never check Strava Mm -hmm. other than to build routes. And the reason I do that is because it uses their heat map, Mm -hmm. um, data to be able to allow you to plan maps. Now it does not work in every case, especially if you're riding obscure trails. Yeah. But if they're approved trails by some type of a, you know, public organization, in most cases, what happens there is that they actually show up. So when you want to go from point A to point B on a trail, it will actually outline that for you. It'll make you follow that trail. It's really easy. Yeah. So their route builder is really good. Ride with GPS is another route builder, Mm -hmm. but you can just export those and then upload them on your Garmin. Which is what I use Google Earth Pro (laughs) for. It's super easy. Yep. So, um, do you, does Google Earth Pro actually follow a trail? Like, if you were to say, like, you wanted to take the Coco Pelli trail and you were just to go from point A to point B, would it actually follow the trail or would it just do as the crow flies?
1: Um, it would actually follow the trail if there's an, a trail there.
0: That's pretty awesome. Yeah
1: you might have to break it up and, you know, modify it slightly, but it works really well.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Squash says, I would like to encourage my wife to try the sport I love. Could you recommend any beginner women's XC or trail type mountain bikes in the $1,500 range? I want something that gives her confidence and is forgiving on the trail. I live in Ohio. So no crazy terrain around here, which would be good for her starting out. She's five, one and 105 pounds. I was looking at a specialized camber, 27.5 for $1,650. Uh, that's $1,650 for those that I realized. U.S. A little vague. dollars. Yes. U.S., yes. Uncle Sam. American coins. dollars. Yes. Uh, 130 millimeter travel fork, so maybe too much party. Thanks, guys. Love the show.
1: I think we both have a very similar understanding of the camber it's the bike that most people should be riding
0: exactly or the 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 type of bike that genre yes like 130 millimeter front 120 even 110 rear yeah would be totally fine even though i think that this one has 130 130 yeah
1: i could be wrong though um i would i would say that the the camber 27.5 um the she's short so a small scalpel se okay 120 mils Hundred and fifteen in the rear, mm-hmm. um, definitely a lighter bike than the Camber. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's there's a lot. Is that of
0: within the price range too? Around fifteen uh, hundred.
1: You should. There should be a sub. I think there's one for eighteen fifty. That's
0: not bad. Not terrible. No, no, not yeah. bad at all. And I would, yeah, I would recommend those bikes. The Camber has a pretty short or pretty low standover height, which helps new riders. Yeah, <clears throat> sorry, but um, I would also do your best to try to help your wife never or understand that that utilizing the standover height, like the, it's not really a safe position to straddle the top tube or anything else like that. So, yeah. standover height becomes less relevant, but mm-hmm. it really does help for comfort, I think, or just assumed comfort in the beginning. Yeah, so I, w- I would also look at
1: a Trek Fuel EX. Okay.
0: Yeah. 120 mil bike. Perfect beginner bike. Yeah. Yeah. That's so in, in the, the key with this with 1500 bucks is you can find actually some used bikes that are like previous gen that might be like two to three specs higher than what your price range is now. Yeah. But you'd be able to pick it up for around that much.
1: Um, absolutely. Yeah. So if you can get a $3,000 bike for 1500 bucks win win.
0: yeah, that would yeah. be a good, good way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. One bit of advice I would say, I'd like to encourage my wife to try the sport I love is what you said there. Um,
1: don't teach her anything.
0: Well, check with her to see if, (laughs) if, if buying a bike is encouragement or if it's obligation.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Because that's, that can be pretty uncomfortable. So What might be the best thing to do is actually like, um, what my wife did before she decided that she actually wanted to get into mountain biking. I bought her a mountain bike first and it was a total, she felt like it was me obligating her to ride. Mm -hmm. She didn't communicate as much because she didn't want to make me feel bad or anything, but I was making her feel bad. So, uh, what we ended up doing was we actually just ended up if, if she wanted to, when there was a demo day, she was like, yeah, I want to go demo a bike. Sounds fun. Yeah. So we would just, we just demoed bikes for like two years. Mm-hmm. And then after a while she was like, I'm actually liking this. Cool. I want to give it a shot again. So maybe that's another decision is, um, I'm not, and I'm not saying that you haven't considered this squash, maybe you have, right. And and she wants to get a bike and everything else, yeah. but that's a conversation I would have beforehand. Just so that way you don't, um, I think that goes on both sides. If, if there's a, a, a female listening to this, that wants to get her husband into riding or her partner into riding, like same thing, just like take into consideration. The fact that maybe they don't want the bike yet, yeah. <laughs> or they yeah. don't want, maybe it's not that they don't want a bike. They just don't want to feel obligated Exactly. when they have a brand new bikes in there. So yeah, Tanya says, love the podcast, but I have a quick question. Not really about mountain bikes. She says you talked about a good e-collar for your dog. What one do you use as we are looking for one for our two dogs? Um, so there are a lot of different. Uh, I guess there's e-collar options out there Mm -hmm. and a lot of different brands. Garmin has some cool ones that I'd like to try out. Mm -hmm. The reason that I really like the Garmin ones is because the, the electrodes, I guess you'd call them, which they, they have a much more like kind term for them. That doesn't sound like electrode. Cattle prods. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, they're not, uh, they don't protrude as much on some of their units. Yeah. In fact, some of them, it's actually smooth and it's just a metal contact. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, which would be I, th- I I know our dogs would like that. I use the Dogtra 280C, but I use the two dog version. Uh-huh. So Dogtras D O G T R A. They make really good ones, like really solid. And in fact, I think they white label for a lot of different other brands. Um, but it's it's a solid remote, and you can get it for. I think that we got ours uh, used. Look look secondhand because you can get them really cheap because people don't know how to use e collars, and they'll you know they'll think that they don't work. So you can look at those ones. And I think we got ours for like 170 bucks. We got two callers and and the remote that controls both of them. It's pretty awesome deal. Yeah. Not bad at all. Um, so that's what I would look at. Uh, the 280C is what we use, but there are plenty of other ones. Garmin also has one that's called like the, uh, it's like a smart, the smart something. And it's actually, it works with your smartphone instead of a remote, the only thing I would say with that is that,
1: uh, that's the Delta smart is what it's called.
0: Yeah. The tricky thing about just using your phone as the a remote is the <laughs> fact that yeah. number one, you're relying on Bluetooth. Uh, number two, you're relying on the battery of your smartphone. If it goes out. Yeah. Number three, the other option is if you have your phone up, I guarantee you that you're not just going to keep it on that app. Or if you get a notification, you bump into something, but you really need to like send a vibration alert to your dog or something like that. Or like an audible call, or you know, even worse, in a serious situation like a shock. Yeah, that's like you need that to be reliable and there instantly. Absolutely. So if your app doesn't work and it crashes or something else like that, that worries me. Yeah. So I, I personally prefer the uh, the dedicated remote approach just because this is such a critical thing. Absolutely. Not you can there's zero margin for error. Yeah. And you can't be pushing the wrong buttons. For example, like I know on mine that I know which buttons which. But on the phone, you could have your thumb in slightly the wrong position and maybe hit the wrong button. Yeah, it'd be terrible. Absolutely. You don't want to confuse your dog. So anyway, that's what I would say. Uh, Matt says five stars, five stars, guys. Thanks for the anti tip on the ardent front tire. It helped me overcome laziness and switch over to the ardent race. And it's amazing. Now being able to ride aggressively and not have the fear of continually washing out. Nice. Good. Yeah. It says, my question relates to crank brothers pedals, specifically the candy three. I've twice got different versions of these pedals stuck in crank arms, SRAM XO and SRAM X nine, and have not been able to remove them. I have broken Allen bits off when trying to remove them. I've attached long pipes to wrenches to get extra leverage without success. I've also tried soaking in PB blaster type penetrants without any result to the best of my awareness, the pedals were not cross threaded when installed on the crank arms. Both pedals were stuck on the non-drive side crank arm. Not sure if there is anything else that could be down, uh, or if these are sized on for eternity, or seized on for eternity at this point, or if this is a problem other people have experienced, never had uh, this issue with other pedals. Thanks, so,
1: Matt, you know, the first thing I'm going to say is you noted that they were both SRAM cranks first. Make sure you always use your stainless uh, spacers, the, yes, the washers. You need those. Always use those with SRAM cranks, and there's other brands that require them. Race face, blah blah blah, but always have to use those with anything. Mm-hmm. Second of all, make sure that you know that you know one of your crank arm or uh, the the threads on the the pedals uh, is reverse thread. You
0: and know it, what I? You know what I? <clears> you know what I use? A handy little trick to remember which direction to go. Yeah, I think. If I want to go forward on my bicycle, I need pedals to pedal it. Yeah. So you pedal forward on. So when I'm putting my pedals on, I move forward. Yes. I just move that Allen wrench forward or yep. that pedal wrench. Yeah. But if I'm ready to take a break and take my pedals off my bike, because I'm not worried about going forward, mm-hmm. I just roll things back.
1: Yeah. That's it. So both sides are pedal forward for install, free wheel, pedal backwards yes. for removal. Um, the second thing is... Leverage is not your friend when it comes to cranks yeah. and, and pedals. The first thing that you do is you basically give it like that instant, yes. quick, quick motion. Snap. A quick snap is usually what breaks it off. Mm-hmm. Um, when Back when I worked at the shop, time and time again, that would always be an issue where we would take the, the Park P-handle 8 millimeters. Yes. And you'd shatter the entire uh, yeah. blue plastic assembly off of it because people would try to put a big breaker bar on it. And then the next thing you do, you just literally give it a quick book and it Snap. just pops and it snaps them every single time it'll pop off. Yeah. But the other thing is people over tighten pedals constantly. They don't need to be that tight.
0: You don't like, I actually, I think tighten mine even less than you do, Steven, but mm-hmm. I finger tighten them in Yeah. and then I take a wrench and I just give it a quick little snug. Yep. Like, that's a it. quick little thing, like yep. a tiny little thing. So then when I'm taking them off. I rarely have a time where it's like snap and it pops and needs to pop loose and I'm taking it off. I just, I just have to apply some force to my hand and it starts coming out. It's not like it's loose in there, Exactly, but it's certainly not what I would call like reefed on or anything else. Like you, you don't need to do that. No. At all. And, and, it's, the th- <laughs> yeah.
1: and the other thing is if you, if you do have an issue with it repeatedly with crank brothers, it might be something to do with the steel alloy that they use in the spindles. I don't know, um, yeah. interfacing with the aluminum,
0: throw a little bit of anti-seize in there. Two Next things. Time. Yeah. Two things that I can think of pedals have a left and right. Yep. So pay attention to that. Yes. Uh, if your pedals, if it's hard to thread your pedals in then there's a problem. Yeah. They should go in nice and smooth. Yes. These aren't like, like pedals don't use anything like a progressive, like a thread pitch or anything else like it's that. It's not
1: a, like an in, like a pipe thread where it's tapered. No. Right.
0: There's nothing like that. Mm-hmm. So as this thing, basically what stops this is the pedal or the some part of the spindle should make contact with that crank arm. Yeah. And it's done.
1: And it's the, the flanged part of the spindle just above the threads. Yep. On your pedals, that is what's creating the tension and stopping it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you don't need to go super tight on these things. No, you don't. Um, And if there's any, if you feel like there's any tension, that's because you've either got the wrong pedal or you're cross threading it. Or perhaps the cranks are harmed in some way to have corrosion, mud or maybe they were cross threaded before. Yeah. And if they've been cross threaded before, do you recommend running through, like chasing the threads out, doing anything like that with crank I would, arms or just getting new crank arms?
1: Um, I just, I've done um, helicoils multiple times for yeah. pedals on many bikes over the years. Um, when it comes to higher-end stuff, mm-hmm. where you've got, say, a carbon arm with an aluminum insert for the threads... That's questionable.
0: Yeah. Might Um,
1: just want to. Most of the time I just get a new crank arm. Yeah. It's probably best to do. Yeah. Just crash, replace it with SRAM or whoever. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Crash replacement or check eBay if you can't do that. Yeah. Because a lot of the time people will just get one crank arm for like power meters or something else like that. Exactly. So I have like five spare crank arms that I'll never use. There you go. (laughs) So, um, okay. Uh, next one's from Chris. He says, Hey, Jonathan and Steven, thanks for the podcast. It's awesome. Extremely informative and super down to earth. Thanks man. Appreciate it. Mm This is all the info is greatly appreciated across the board. I'm sure also it's pleasant to be able to listen to a podcast or anything for that matter nowadays, without F bombs and cuss words every two seconds. So Who? keep rocking it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, we got, we we're getting a lot of comments on that recently. So I'm glad that it's appreciated. We just don't, we just want you to. You know, you hear plenty of that. Otherwise, yeah. um, So we don't want to, you know, fill that in. And then also, we want to make it so that you can listen to this comfortably wherever you are.
1: Yeah, we want we want you to be able to listen with your kids or with you know the if you're a coach for junior cycling, whatever. Like we want.
0: Well, we got to look out for our an, future, right? Yeah. Introducing a new friend of the podcast. Exactly. You don't want to introduce him to a trashy thing. So exactly. Uh, he says, my question is pertaining to demos. I know, uh, he's pertaining to demos. I know you guys covered demos recently, but my question is more geared towards what, uh, options there are to demo bikes along the East coast, such as a Yeti, for example, <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, um, he says, being as there are no Yeti dealers remotely close to Ohio, I've been interested in a few bikes and there are quite a few companies that do not do demos here more than likely due to the fact that Ohio usually drags behind in a lot of outdoor sports. Plus we don't have hardly any gnarly trails here due to the lack of mountains or even large hills or rocky terrain. Anyways, back to the question is my only option to travel to the Midwest or West coast and just do a big demo trip or do companies offer demos any other way, perhaps like a, uh, like ship a demo bike to my local bike shop. Thanks again. And again, I appreciate everything you guys do.
1: I've never heard of a company shipping a bike to a local bike shop for the purpose of demoing. Yeah. Never I've heard never that. heard of that at all. Yeah. Um, personally, what I would do is I would make a vacation out of it and come hang so out with us at Sedona mountain bike festival. Come do it. <laughs> yeah. That
0: would be ideal. If the, you could. Yeah. The other way to do it is to get you, assemble you and anybody else in your region that wants to have a demo mm-hmm. and contact whatever manufacturer you want to have and let them know that you guys would like a demo here.
1: Yeah. And if you guys have to travel, you know, a hundred miles or 150 right. to somewhere. Where there is a local dealer for Yeti or for Cannondale or for Intense or whoever, mm-hmm. then that makes it a little bit easier. Get eight of yeah. your closest friends together.
0: I can't speak for every brand, but I know for <clears throat> Yeti, the way that they plan their demo schedule is based off of demand. In yeah. short, they look at where they've had demos in the past, where there are a lot of people that that demoed bikes and yeah. and and in bought bikes too. Mm-hmm. Or they look for situations where people are asking for a demo and there's a, there's a demand for that where many, many people will be there. So that's how they plan them. It's pretty straightforward. So assemble your crew. Yes. And get to petitioning. Absolutely. Absolutely. James says, hi guys. Love the podcast and have a question regarding shoes. I'm looking for a new pair of XC trail shoes and can't wrap my head around all of the different types of shoes. When looking for something like a skate shoe, I would just head to the store and try on different shoes until I find something I liked. In the cycling world, every shopper store I go to will only carry a couple of models of shoes, making it very difficult to compare different shoes. I know this man's struggle. So to my question, I am wondering if there are any shoes you would recommend. Like I said, I'm looking for an XC type shoe and I tend to have wide feet and I wear about a 44 and a half in European size. Currently I have a set of Giro rumbles and 45. I'd like something with a semi stiff sole and a better retention system like boa dials or similar. Mm-hmm. He says, thanks so much, James.
1: You're still going to have to try shoes on
0: James at the end of the day. <laughs> it's kind of sucks, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's hard to find. And I understand this dude's the, the the quandary he's in, because mm-hmm. I have shoe, or I have feet that are very fussy. I have like a wide forefoot and a narrow heel. Yeah. And then I also get like, a, I have issues with like cold weather and frost nip and frostbite that then causes like swelling, which is super uncomfortable through yeah. the winter in my toes. Your dainty persnickety feet <laughs> match your stomach, yeah. right? <laughs> I think I'm just a dainty persnickety person, period. I think that's what we're getting at here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it is frustrating. The one thing I can say is that specialized shoes fit a foot like mine very well. Mm-hmm. And it frustrates me because last year I spent over $900 on mountain bike shoes or on, on, I should say cycling shoes. Yeah. And that is way too much money. Yeah. But after having to buy three pairs, one of them at a substantial discount because they were secondhand, mm-hmm. but three pairs of shoes in one year, cause my road shoes wore out. And yeah. then I had to get new ones and then my mountain bike shoes wore out and I had to get new ones. I put a lot of time in to, uh, on these shoes and they just wear out. So uh, it's really frustrating. I wish Giro fit well yeah. um, because I like Giro and everything else, but they have a really narrow
1: forefoot. They do. That's the big problem. I can't. So you and I seem to have a similar foot profile, mm-hmm. but my Mavic shoes, you don't like the way they fit.
0: Yeah, they're okay, but they, they still taper off a bit early for me. Okay and that's like i need like a late taper got it which is what specialized shoes has going for yeah. them so yeah. um so as far as xc shoes uh what would you recommend i you know i like i said i would look at specialized you said that you're looking for boa dials i would check out their comp mountain bike shoes cuz you said semi stiff so you aren't looking for something that's absolutely like you know really really stiff on your foot um, I would check them out, uh, because you're not going to get into boa dials with Jiro for quite a while, um, until you get into the higher priced items. So if you were to go for the comp shoe, it's 150 bucks. Um, it's got one boa dial and two, then two Velcro straps. I love boa dials for riding. They're awesome. I've never broken one off or anything else. And I've crashed plenty of times with them. Uh, they don't let loose on me. Yeah. So. Uh, however, I can say with buckles, I have actually torn two buckles off of shoes before. Okay. So, uh, but I've never had a problem with boa dials. So it's got a nylon, um, composite outsole, so it doesn't have like a carbon sole, but it's still going to be semi stiff. Like what you asked for, if you want something stiffer, uh, then you're going to be looking at going with their expert XC shoes. Those ones are 200 bucks. So not a whole lot more. Um, but those ones have a carbon sole on them or at least carbon reinforced. So that's what I would say. And for me, if you're going to try Mavic out, which I think you should. Yeah, they're, um, good. they're really good shoes. The Crossmax
1: Elite is a $160 shoe, and that's going to be a nylon outsole, um, breathable. It's going to have uh, a boa lace uh, similar tech on the top with mm-hmm. two um, Velcro straps on the bottom. Sweet. 160 bucks. And then also their Crossmax Pro, which is two boa laces. It's not Boa, but it's whatever they right. call their tech wire. Um, and that's a $250 shoe, but you are moving up to carbon, but it's actually a compliant carbon.
0: Yeah. They're, Mavic's are sweet. In yeah. fact, if I could wear any brand of shoes, it would probably be Mavic. Yeah. But, um, and I like them, and they're, they're reasonable. But if they made a white... XC shoe and their they, top end one they used to then then they would have me yeah you don't want the I would bright yellow through no, no. i love dude
1: i love my <laughs> no. i've got the Crossmax SL Ultimates for cyclocross and for XC yeah. and i
0: love that shoe it's so comfortable uh, here's the downside though oh it's I bright yellow it's a downside well it's i don't have a helmet that matches that that's okay The helmet must match the shoes. It's awfully roady of you, sir. (laughs) It's very roady of me, (laughs) but the helmet must match the shoes. Okay. I may or may not have yellow on my bike next year. Hmm.
1: I didn't know that there was a scalpel... (laughs) <laughs> available in yellow.
0: I'm not riding a scalpel. <laughs> Sweet bike. But Yo, not I just one. love, by the way, it, <laughs> yeah. have you
1: noticed, have you gotten any personal messages from any of our listeners or friends about like, what is going on for next year? Like people oh. are messaging me all the time. Like you guys are jerks. Like you're, you're talking, <laughs> but not saying anything. <laughs> yeah. And Jonathan, like what is going on? What's yeah. happening next year? Yeah,
0: I can't say. Yeah. Who knows? Um, so, um, Uh, let's go into the next one and this will be the last one. So, uh, this one's from Josh He says, good day. Love the podcast. And I'm on round two of listening, great quality of content and character, which keeps me coming back. Good to hear Josh. Hope it continues. He says, I have a question about kids, mountain bikes, not the kind you find at a big box stores because those are scary. Mm -hmm. Yes, they are. My son is an expert level BMX racer and wants to get into mountain biking more. He loves to ride hard and conquer the dirt jumps, but I feel that his current mountain bike is holding him back. It's a specialized hard rock, 24 inch. And I've been looking at the transition Ripcord NS nerd jr. I guess it's not out quite yet. The Kona stinky two, four Supreme 24 propane, Yuma, etc. cetera. It's good to see all the options, but just looking for some solid advice on a trail bike that can hold up and be ridden like a full size bike. I have a budget of about 1800 to two grand. Thanks for the info. Keep up the great work on the podcast. Um, and then he has some follow-up information. His son is a little over four feet tall, weighs about 65 pounds and is 12 years old. So, um, so I don't personally have any experience in these with these bikes, yeah. uh, other than just secondhand experience from mm-hmm. friends, uh, give me, hmm, I don't know, give me two years, three years or so. And I'm sure I'll have plenty of, I'll be very much into this yeah. because Simon will be of that age. Uh, but that said, I can, I can say that the All Supreme 24, I know three Friends that have them for their kids. Yeah. That bike is incredible. It is amazing little bike. And you can um, get something set up, uh, oh gosh, all, a trail craft, I think, makes cranks that you can set up with a one by and a narrow wide chain ring. Yeah which is awesome for kids because then you simplify the whole thing. So they just shift in back. It's all yeah. up front and back. So you can get a one by drive train for these kids with trail craft cranks. Yeah. That's a really good setup too.
1: Yeah. Um, I think that the, uh, the transition ripcord or the Comensal would be my choices. I actually have a friend whose son has the stinky two four mm-hmm. and it's a nice little bike. It's a little heavy. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only thing is it's a little bit Kona's
0: heavy. MO. Yeah. Know? They make um, sweet
1: bikes. Yeah. So uh, the comments all would be my recommendation, mm. you know?
0: Yeah. Cool. Steven, actually let's just knock out two more. Let's, see let's if we can do, do, do it. it. Okay. Let's rip through them. Why is it so from Christopher, why is it so popular in mountain biking to be as stiff as possible? I grew up racing motocross and recently switched to racing bicycles about a year and a half ago. I race open pro in the fast growing discipline of enduro. I ride a 29 inch alloy bike with alloy bars. And alloy wheels, forgive me, 160 millimeter fork and 130 millimeters on the rear. I have no complaints and love the way my bike rides and handles, but I constantly get people telling me that I need to ride carbon because it's stiffer from my moto background. I recall bikes always having an alloy frame and alloy bars. I actually never heard of carbon stuff until entering the mountain bike world. Anyway, just wondering if you guys believe the stiffness in a carbon ride would really benefit me with my racing and why thank you very much for taking the time to answer my question. Love the podcast. You gentlemen keep up the good work. Thanks Chris.
1: So uh, first of all, the thing you need to remember, Chris is when we talk about stiffness of carbon, when it relates to wheels, mm-hmm. we are talking about the lateral stiffness, the flexibility, the wa- yes. the waggling of the wheel as it's bouncing all over the place. Yes, you didn't have to worry about that in moto because you were probably running a 19-inch rear wheel with exactly. giant spokes that were like uh, three quarters of an inch in diameter. Yeah, exactly, not really, but yeah, um, sewer so pipes. Y- yes, yeah. yeah, <laughs> <yeah>, exactly. <laughs> Your uh, your wheels were ridiculously stiff because they were so small diameter yeah. and so just uh-huh. everything about them was just made way stiffer. You have mm-hmm. huge hub flanges, smaller uh, uh, wheel diameter, big giant spokes. So when you talk about a 29-inch mountain bike, you have so much distance between the hub to the the rim itself that you're going to have flex side to side. And that's where carbon is going to help with stiffness.
0: That said, in many cases... uh. Carbon rim will be less vertically compliant than an yeah. aluminum rim. Yes. Aluminum rims, a lot of the time, are aluminum itself, like aluminum handlebars and everything else, it does not mean it is more flexible no. across the board. No, not at all. In fact, in most cases, you find an aluminum component being stiffer, more rigid. Yes. It certainly translates more vibration yeah. than what you get with most carbon stuff. Yeah. So it's, but the thing about carbon is it's not just like, you know, one material or the other. It's almost like it, it cheats the game, it, it establishes new rules. Yes, you can utilize carbon fiber to engineer flex characteristics in one way, and actually avoid flex characteristics in another. Yes. Whereas metal is just going to be much more uniform. Hydroforming, you can do some stuff, but yeah. it's still nowhere near the level of customization that you can yeah. get with carbon.
1: So that's the beauty of things like you know I, I would recommend you know carbon bars for me are always, I yes. will always run carbon bars on a mountain bike. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because of the damping characteristics, the harmonic damping that you will, you'll just smooth out everything on the trail.
0: It's amazing. And it's really beneficial. Yeah.
1: Good carbon bars. Should I say?
0: Yes, that's true because you can get bad ones and then they'll just end up transferring even more and they'll kind of be like a little, like a, they could be like a springboard on there too. if exactly. they're too cheap. Yeah. Um, something for you to keep in mind, Christopher. So I'm going to get into the moto stuff, but so KTMs and Husqvarna's use a steel frame, whereas the majority of the Japanese bikes like Honda, Yamaha, Suzuki, and Kawasaki use aluminum frames. Yeah. So those are the chassis that the bikes have. Mm-hmm. They have an aluminum swing arm as well. That come, That's a part of the chassis. Yeah. They have an aluminum subframe. That's part of the chassis. They have aluminum clamps up front, the triple clamps. Mm-hmm. It's aluminum. They have aluminum handlebars. There are no... Uh, I shouldn't say there are no carbon bars, but carbon bars have not reached anything that you would call even remotely close to ubiquity in the, in the motocross world. A lot of that people assume is because of harmonic vibrations and how it could damage the carbon fiber or something else like that. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I necessarily buy into that. I just think that it's not in high demand. Yes. So it's not being made. Mm -hmm. Uh, That sport runs on even thinner margins than what we run on in the bicycle world. Yeah. So anyways, but they have these KTMs and Husqvarna's that have a steel frame. If you look, they actually run thicker forks on the front. They run stiffer triple clamps on the front and they'll even have a more reinforced swing arm because what they're trying to do is you have to look at your bike as a complete structure. Okay. So when you're looking at your bike as a complete structure, you don't want to have Massively thick and stiff stanchions on your forks, mm-hmm. massively overbuilt triple clamps, an aluminum really stiff frame, and a really stiff swing arm because your bike is just going to lose feel. You have suspension travel in there, which in, which introduces a lot of compliance. Yeah, but. What you're basically doing is you have to engineer flex or some type of give or compliance into the bike in some way. Yes. So whereas aluminum framed motorcycles, they almost always have thinner forks to uh, introduce some flex and compliance there. Yeah. They'll run stock triple clamps a lot of the time because they'll be more flexible than something that's overbuilt and really tough. On your mountain bike, you have pretty flimsy suspension compared to what you're used to on a dirt bike. Mm -hmm. So as a result, you have a really high level of compliance there. So you can just overbuild the thing with stiffness throughout the rest of your bike, if you want with something that's carbon fiber, um, or, you know, aluminum kind of, but once again, you're not getting intelligent stiffness as much as you are with carbon. It's more inherent
1: stiffness. Exactly.
0: So in that case, you can kind of overbuild it since you have suspension. That's a little bit more, uh, I should say plush in that respect. Now, um. So I I guess that what I'm getting at here is that you're kind of comparing apples to oranges and when you look at your bike, you need to look at it in terms of a whole entire structure that needs to have compliance in certain areas and shouldn't have compliance in others. And that will vary based on what type of rider you are. Yes. James Stewart, for example, loves to run extremely, extremely stiff suspension on his dirt bike. The forks were like, he basically just had solid bars for forks, right? And then as a result, what he would do a lot of the time from my understanding and from speaking to different people, they would actually sand down the frame, that aluminum frame in certain areas. Uh They might have sanded that with a grinder, maybe maybe even brought in a welder, but, uh, they actually would adjust to add some compliance in the frame. They would adjust to add some, some some compliance in the triple clamps as well, because he ran such stiff suspension, whereas some people might be the opposite and they might have more suspension compliance, then they'll be stiffer in the chassis. Yeah, It's all a balance.
1: And that's the way that I would prefer it on an enduro bike is I want as stiff a chassis as possible with the plushest suspension possible. I agree. Same here. So that's my way of of looking at things but the way that I'm looking at it is if I have deflection or flex in the frame mm-hmm. I'm taking away from the damping of the suspension.
0: I absolutely. So yep. when you
1: deflect off of the suspension path you are introducing tensions and torques on the frame and taking away from the plushness of the bike,
0: which in many cases that torque will manifest itself in movements or reactions within the chassis that are less than favorable.
1: Yeah, like bucking you off a certain direction that is not you know, the trail anymore.
0: Exactly. Yeah. That's why you see people going away from these super long rocker arms and everything else, because they're trying to get to a more stiff chassis that won't react poorly like that. Exactly. So that's why yokes are something that are becoming less and less common. Exactly. Shock yokes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Last one from Josh. He says, Hey guys, I'm new to mountain biking, but I've been a roadie for 10 years. I currently ride an XC trail bike on XC as trails, not Enduro or DH. What's the recommendation for apparel? I've been wearing my Lycra for the riding, but I realize that even XC guys wear some baggies or wear baggies sometimes. Thanks for the help and keep up the great content. Great. Listen to great to listen to at work. Well, that's
1: the beauty of baggies now is they're not just downhill, you know, rat baggies anymore. They're doing specific XC type baggies.
0: Yeah. And you can even, and a lot of the stuff is getting like much more like, so the, I I run Yeti's baggies stuff Mm -hmm. and they have like underneath on the leg, they have this like really slick material Yeah, and it stops it from like riding up or catching or chafing. They have like, uh, it's coated in like cool fabrics, everything else. And then it's got like a much more like close to leg fit. It's not necessary. They do have shorts that are wider, but the ones that I use, the, the, uh, geez, I think Freelands or Toland's I use the Freelands. Okay. The Freelands have more of like a, or no, I use the Enduro short, forgive me. Okay. Um, and then it's a
1: race cut. Yeah.
0: Yep. And then Enduro short is a little bit more thin and cut to you. So, um, so yeah, I, there's a lot of different options and I figure this is probably as good of an opportunity as any, to go over the faux paws. Of fashion and cycling or mountain biking. Okay. I think that if you're riding an enduro bike and you're wearing Lycra, it's a little bit weird. You, that's excusable. If you win.
1: Always. (laughs) Everything is, well, not everything, but yeah, yeah, yeah. most things are excusable if you win.
0: Yeah. Now, if you're riding an XC bike, you can definitely wear both. You can wear a Lycra or that. But the one thing I would say is match the kit to the helmet. And what I mean by that is if it's Lycra, you don't need a visor. You know, that, that I know a lot of people are going, Oh, everyone should use a visor. But if you're wearing Lycra, you can pull off a no visor helmet, but okay. if you're wearing baggies, it's tough to pull off that it no is. visor helmet. Yeah. If you're wearing Lycra and you're wearing a visor, it's cool. Yeah. No problem. Whatever. Um, it does look more XC to not have a visor, but that's just cause that's what we're used to looking at. Okay. Um, do you have any other fashion faux pas or, or rules to live by perhaps instead of mistakes?
1: Don't wear Lycra. And goggles.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> don't ever that's do that. Okay. Um, uh, you know, yeah. as long as your helmet has, I guess, a visor. If it's a half helmet, I guess you can run goggles. Yeah. 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 Looks a little weird, but it, sure. Why not? Yeah.
1: It's very enduro. Very enduro. Yeah. Decidedly not Xy.
0: I think that we should wrap all of this up, though, by saying wear whatever the heck you want and don't care what people think. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you're not a roadie anymore, Josh. Yeah. Exactly fine. right. Yeah. This is true. Um, so yeah, I. You can wear, you can wear Lycra or you can wear baggies and it's totally cool. Uh, I personally like to match my helmet to the kit. So baggy, visor, Lycra, no visor. I just wear baggy all the time. There we go. All right, Steven, uh, with that, let's just, uh, close this one down. We'll be back. We have tons more questions to go through, so maybe we'll get in another questions episode or we'll be back with a normal episode next week. I think
1: We'll do a normal episode and then we'll have to add some more questions in later. Cool. But for now we have works to do and we have cyclocross to do. Indeed. Well, We'll you do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to heckle. I'll do me. Yeah. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Boo-boo. See everybody next week. Have a nice day.